0: The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. We're going to be back in John 17. Remember that? The Gospel of John. It's been since November since I uh, began this uh, high priestly prayer of Jesus. And um, it's a little bit strange. Uh, So much time going by. I didn't want to just... Pick up where I left off because it's such a it's such a weighty prayer, and so I decided I'm going to give kind of an aerial view, kind of a uh, uh, what's the main thing about this prayer and how it's relevant in our lives. So John 17, if you want to turn your Bibles uh, to it, and um, and let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's blessing over the rest of our worship service. Father, you are you're worthy of all worship, all worship in song, worship in our lives and our attitudes, worship in, in now opening your word. So would you, would you bless, would you help us to grasp the importance of Jesus' prayer in John 17, how this, is, how this is relevant in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so John 17. We're gonna just take a in, instead of reading a uh, a section of it or or the whole thing. I'm gonna just and then preaching. I'm just gonna preach through it. So I'll have some verses up on on the screen, or if you want to follow along in your Bibles, that would that would be great. This is man. This is a this is a weighty weighty prayer. Um, and because of its weightiness, uh, I, I'm going to suggest to you it's relevant for everything. It's relevant in your life and everything that you do. It's relevant to uh, Facebook posts. I, you know, I go through seasons of life with Facebook. Sometimes I'll, I'll actually post something. Sometimes I'll actually go there and read. And then sometimes I just get, I get bored with it or annoyed by it and I avoid it. Um, So not, not so much intentional. It's just, you know, these seasons. Well, I came across, or I was given a post from Facebook that I thought, you know, what this young woman, this this is a young married woman, grew up in the church, grew up under a homeschool family, n- not from our church, nobody that you know, so don't try to, to figure out who's writing this. But, um, but I, I thought, this really expresses what I hear a lot. I don't know if you've heard the the term uh, ex-vangelical, instead of an evangelical, now I'm an ex-vangelical. Uh, people who have been disillusioned with the church. Or another term that you hear is that, that they're, they, they've deconstructed their faith or they're reconstructing their faith in the image that they want it to be in. And um, so, so a lot of, there's a lot of voices out there that expresses something similar to what I'm going to share with you. That expresses a um, a really a low view of the church, uh, uh, um, a disillusionment with the church, with with Christianity, really. And um, I think uh, over the last I don't know how many years, at least ten years, the biggest problem that we're facing in Christianity is is a terrible ecclesiology, a terrible view, a low view of the church, uh, not appreciating. Uh, the unity that we are to have, and this is what Jesus is really ultimately speaking of, or praying that we're going to read. So let me share this Facebook uh, post with you and see if it—if it, if it um, hopefully, it's not what you're thinking. If it is, uh, write us. I'd love questions. I'd love to to answer any questions if you're if you're struggling and thinking along these lines. We always worry about. Our, our kids growing up in the church, becoming teens, going to college, and being and and struggling and rejecting their faith and hearing a bunch of garbage that um, takes them away from their foundation. So here, let me read this. I think our belief systems are just conglomerations of things we believe that that we've gathered throughout our lives from people or sources. We've trusted to have our best interest at heart. We make these things our identity, problem number one. Uh, We make these things our identity. As soon as we feel safe trusting someone or something, it's a temptation to stop gathering more insight and stop our ears and say, this is the way, and I need nothing else. I reject new or opposing information from what I already have but then we we lose. We lose the ability to broaden our understanding and seek unity. She says unity a few times, and I find that interesting in light of John 17. We lose the ability to broaden our understanding and seek unity. And when a source of influence turns out to be corrupt, our world crashes down around us, and we have to start over in gathering things that, We think we can trust. My theory is this. People who have had that crash happen are the ones who are hungry. We are regathering and rebuilding. We realize we were wrong about a lot of things. We realize our influencers were wrong about a lot of things, yet they were very confident in their wrongness, boastful even, and very antagonistic toward other viewpoints. We start to question whether we can ever be right when so many are arguing night and day about rightness. We want to do better and learn from our mistakes and the mistakes of our influencers. We want the pain to stop spreading. We want to return to peace and unity. So the questions come down to these, and these are are great questions. What is right? What is truth? Who gets to decide? Who can I trust to tell me the truth? Can I trust myself to tell me the truth? Can I trust others? So it seems to come down to trust, doesn't it? Who can we trust to tell us the truth? Honestly, I, I really don't get it. This is something that we hear all the time. <clears throat> and it makes no sense to me whatsoever, so if it makes sense to you, would you help me understand, would you explain this to me, what the world so often tells us is, is just follow your own heart. Uh, it'll never let you down. Really? Um, not only does this advice fail in everyone's actual Experience, but it's also contrary to God's word. With a little with a little hindsight, it's pretty easy for me to see that there's been many things that my heart has wanted that would have resulted in disaster and misery. And I can imagine you can do the same thing with a little bit of reflection. Doesn't take much. God's word is right and true. And because God is our, well, he's our maker, I I suppose he gets to decide. And because Jesus is the perfect image of God, because Jesus reveals who God is, because Jesus, well, what did he do? He He actually proved all of this. His right to speak, his right for us to Trust him. He actually proved it by living a perfect, perfectly obedient, righteous life. He actually came and loved us so much that he would would die in our place. He proved it. He rose from the dead. He proved it. It seems that we should be able to trust him. (laughs) If anybody's going to tell us the truth, it's Jesus. He actually claimed to be truth. So if you don't believe Jesus is the truth, then call him a nutcase and leave. He either is or he isn't. But if you make that kind of claim and you're not, there's a problem. He actually claimed to be the truth. God's word tells us that no, you really can't trust your heart. In fact, we're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the truth about our hearts. If we do this, if we if we stop listening to Jesus as truth, then our world will come crashing down around us. And what we rebuild what is it going to be? It's just going to be a, an idol to ourselves and what we want to define and believe to be true. Somebody's the authority. God has proved it. We're all listening to someone. We're all choosing to trust and believe someone. And if you choose to believe what is contrary to Scripture, then you're, you're only believing the father of lies. Isn't God and his word the standard of truth? And if, you're, if your parents or spouse or friend or pastor tells you something that doesn't seem to agree with Scripture, shouldn't it be questioned? Please question it. Questions are great. You know me by now. I love questions. They're either something that's going to correct my thinking, they're going to enable us, they enable us to learn, or they give us an opportunity to clarify a misunderstanding. So ask questions. Don't just keep them away and have an opinion that might be wrong. Jesus' prayer speaks to this. It speaks of an unbroken chain of unity with God as the source and our joyful living for others for the sake of his glory. Our culture tells us to be about yourself. And Jesus prays that that we'll live in in a unity that comes from the very oneness of God. This is mysterious. It's weighty. It's a weighty prayer. And it should keep us grounded in the main thing. And the main thing is the unity and glory of God. We need something weighty. And I don't think I could, I don't think it's possible for me to, to overstate the importance, the significance of this prayer of this prayer. Think of it, the the most significant event in all of human history. What is it? It's the cross. The incarnation had to do with the cross. The, The life of Jesus led to the cross. The resurrection is a result and vindication because of the cross. It's all wrapped up together, and at the center, it's the cross It is the ultimate central event in all of human history. Everything and everyone is judged according to it, is defined by it. And even before time began, the very plan of God had to do with the righteous Lamb of God being slain for the redemption of sinners center of all of human history it's before human history and so john 17 is jesus's own prayer that we can read at the hour of the cross so it certainly must be the most significant prayer in all of human history because it has to do with history's central event Everything else revolves around this. All other prayers, every pursuit of life is viewed in light of the cross. So if we need something to ground us, and we do, this prayer is a good place to go. Jesus prays concerning big, ultimate things. We might be concerned with, well, we're concerned with a lot of things, a lot of important things, and I don't want to diminish any of them. We can be concerned about finances and education and politics and injustices that are going on. We may have we have trouble in our marriage, parenting concerns, schooling choices, issues in the workplace, but Jesus... He speaks of big, broad, ultimate things. He didn't speak of these. He doesn't pray concerning these kinds of things. And yet what he does pray applies to everything. It applies to our attitudes and our purposes in all that we do. So that's where it will touch on all of these things. If we we were to uh, outline this prayer... We see that Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. And then he prays for, for his original disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays, he prays for you today. He prays for us. So let's, let's work our way through this prayer. Let's begin. Verse 1. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow! We get a glimpse of the person of Jesus, who he really is that he is truly man and truly God. If you ever doubted the deity of Jesus, there are a lot of verses that speak to this. But consider verse 5. Verse 5, Jesus prays. He prays for a different kind of glory. He prays for a heavenly glory, a Shekinah glory that that Peter, James, and John maybe got a, a little glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. But notice that Jesus describes this as a, as a return to glory, a glory that, that he had before the world existed. So Jesus existed before the world began. He, yes, he had this earthly origin and his humanity in a Bethlehem manger, but he was in the beginning. He was with God, and he, as the maker of all things, was God. Jesus is God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Well, chapter 1 of John tells us no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, He has made the Father known. He has made Him known. The Father sent the Son so that we might know Him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Remember that glorifying God speaks of speaks of revealing, speaks of showing, manifesting Jesus will say in this prayer. And and I've given that example of a telescope. We magnify God. We glorify God like a telescope looking up at something that we don't have a right understanding of, that seems small and tiny and insignificant, but when we look through that and it's magnified, we see it for what it really is. And our lives are like that. And Jesus is the ultimate of that. When we look through him, we get a real picture of who God actually is. And this is why he came. So the life of Jesus the characteristics that we see in him. It all speaks of God the Father. We should never view Jesus as contrary to the Father. That unlike the Father, well, Jesus, he's the kind and merciful one, while the Father, he's the one who smites everyone. What we see in Jesus is true of the Father. His righteous anger, his his patience and kindness and love and grace. The reason we see it in Jesus is for the sake of seeing that this is who God is. Verse 4 tells us this, that the Father sent the Son to glorify Him, and Jesus has accomplished it. Jesus begins this prayer asking for the overarching purpose it's in verse 1. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus came to glorify. He came to reveal, to show us who God is. And now, this central event of the cross reveals who Jesus is. He He is the once-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is that Lamb of God who takes away our sins. He is the reality and the fulfillment of hundreds of years of animal sacrifices done for people who deserve to die. He is that sacrifice, and he will show himself to be to be more when he defeats sin and death and rises from the grave. He will be glorified. He will be revealed. He will be shown as all of this. And the primary purpose in doing so, the primary purpose of of him coming and revealing the cross Contrary to popular songs and bad theology, it's not us. That's not the reason. Father, glorify your Son. Here's the reason that, here's, this is the ultimate reason that, the Son may glorify you. The cross reveals that the Father has given Jesus the right to give eternal life. The cross shows us who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man described in Daniel 7. The one coming in the clouds, having, having all authority given to him by the Ancient of Days, given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jesus prays for this glory. And even in receiving glory, everything that he does is ultimately to make the Father known. Didn't he say, you know, everything that he says, he, he only says because the Father told him to say. Everything that he does, he only does because it's what the Father told him to do. The glory of Jesus is about the glory of the Father, which leads to us knowing God, which leads to us glorifying God. It's not one thing to the exclusion of the other but but all speaks of god's greatness and our joy in knowing him so doesn't that doesn't that give you some confidence not in yourself not in any goodness or intelligence to know what is true we can't eternal life has been has been given to us. And what is eternal life that Jesus prays? Knowing God. Knowing Jesus. We didn't discover God. It's grace. It's a gift. It was given to us. So if we really want to know what's true, is there any other person or source that's been proven to be worthy of the trust that Jesus deserves. The gospel is our solid foundation. And if we realize any wrong theological structures in our lives, it shouldn't devastate us. If someone disappoints you, it shouldn't surprise you, really. We're all sinners. We're to be in community with one another. We're to forbear and overlook and confront and forgive and confess and people are going to let you down. You shouldn't leave the church because of what will inevitably happen in all of life. It shouldn't devastate us. It should only be our joy at the realization of what is true and growing in truth, which means that we've got a clearer picture of who God really is. That's wonderful. And we have access to a right knowledge of Jesus because of the next section in this prayer. Let's read, beginning with verse 6. Now Jesus prays for these original disciples of his. I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus has manifested or revealed He has glorified the Father's name, which is, which is His character. And we see here that, that knowing God is not a matter of wise and smart ones discerning Jesus for who He is. No, it's a matter of the electing love of God. The people Jesus saves or gave a knowledge of God to, are described as the people whom the Father gave to Jesus. You can't avoid it. We see it in John 6. Jesus taught the same thing. He said, But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, all that the Father gives to me. Apart from the Father giving us to the Son, we might see something superficial about Jesus, but we we won't believe who he really is. These disciples belonged to God, and he gave them to Jesus, and they have kept or, or received or believed the truth concerning God's word, that Jesus is, he's the Messiah. Let's read on. Verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have Come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. What a glorious connection. Notice that Jesus never acts on his own. He is about the glory of the Father, and the Father glorifies the work of the Son, and the same is true of these disciples. They are to glorify or reveal Jesus. And isn't it, isn't this what occurs? You know, what is the result of that? What, is, what, what? Let's define that. What's our New Testaments? The truth that they have been given is is breathed out by God in their writings, by the Holy Spirit, it's our New Testaments. Telling us, glorifying Jesus, telling us the story of Jesus, telling us who Jesus is, telling us how all of God's Word is fulfilled in Jesus. And again, shouldn't we have confidence in God? Shouldn't we have confidence in His his written Word? After all, okay, think of it this way. What we're reading here, again, it's a prayer. It's a prayer. Jesus is, he's asking his father. And if anyone's going to perfectly receive a petition, it's Jesus. So we should have confidence in the Bible. Because this is what he's praying for. He's praying, God's word being written. He's praying for the protection and, and, and our connection to the apostolic church. Can it fail? Will God say no to Jesus' prayer? What kind of confidence should we have? Let's read on. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus prays that the Father would would keep them in his name. In other words, Father, don't let them be wrong about us. Keep them in your name. Your character needs to be glorified through them, through, through their lives, through the scriptures, through that they write. They need to be kept in your character. The Son only says what the Father tells him to, and this unity will come through in their calling as apostles who complete God's revelation and establish the church. Great confidence. Skip down to verse 17. Jesus continues, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctified. Not the kind of sanctification Pastor Bill was Talking about a couple of weeks ago. There's a a few different ways to think about sanctification. In this sense, it means being set apart for a holy purpose. There's a connection there, but being set apart for, for a holy purpose. Jesus consecrated or set himself apart for the holy purpose of these disciples being set apart for the sake of truth, for the sake of God's name, his character, that they get it right for the sake of God's Word, which reveals this truth to us and changes us. So in the first section, Jesus prays for Himself. In the the second, He prays for His disciples in establishing the church. And in this last section, He actually prays for us here today. If you know Jesus today, Then around 2,000 years ago, he prayed for you. He's praying for you now. He's always interceding for us. But we get to read this one. Amazing. Let's read it. Look down at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. He prays that they, we, may be one. Of all the things that he can pray, this is what he prays. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's our witness. If we're not one, we have no witness. He doesn't only pray for the disciples who were who were with him prior to the cross he prays for us and you believed as a result of that apostolic ministry kept by the father what does jesus pray he prays for our unity not just i don't think he's not just talking about unity and love it's part of that, but it's bigger, it's broader. It's a unity of revealed truth of God. We are united in the gospel, in the essentials of the Christian faith, as taught by the apostles. Keep seeing all this connection. We are not disconnected from any of it. So this unity, it's it's not only... um, It's not only Bear Creek Church. It's not only the church universal, worldwide, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the church historic. We are united to them. We are united to the apostles. That is the unity. We are not, you know, the Mormons like to describe themselves as a denomination, a Christian denomination. We are not united to them. They are not a Christian denomination. Why? Because they are not one with the essentials, the apostolic teachings. They want to say that something was left out, and here we got something else, or it was corrupt. No, it wasn't corrupt, because God answered Jesus' prayer, and he kept them in the truth. When Jesus prays for our unity and makes a comparison to the Father in Him and He in the Father. Part of what's being said is that there is a unity that's based on our, our adhering to what the Father gave to these first disciples through Jesus. There is an unbreakable tie from what we confess to be true to the apostles, to Jesus, which came from the Father. This unbreakable tie is the oneness that Jesus prays will be so and is certain and we can be confident in. People wonder, how do we know that what we have is actually what this prayer is how we know? God is sovereign. He answers his son because his son is righteous and perfect. This is our confidence. And again, if anyone's skeptical about about the truth that we have today, they must think that God said no to Jesus, no to his prayer. And if this is their belief, then they not only deny the power of God, but his perfect unity within the Godhead. Wow, what an incredible prayer. Let's pick it back up at verse 22, and we'll read to the end. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory and that, that you've given me because you love me because before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and i will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and i in them oh there is so much here and i keep coming back to the word to the word describing this weighty glory the eternal son of god speaks of his perfect unity to the father and his unity to us the two words that that seem to summarize this prayer are unity and glory. And when I think of those who have become ex-evangelicals or deconstructed their faith or walked away from the church, I think, "Oh, how relevant is this prayer? How could they? How could they?" Read the heart of Jesus here and conclude that their faith is individual and the church is unnecessary. You ever wonder, you know, people will say, and it's a true statement, Christianity is not a, a religion. Somewhat true. We are, it is a religion. It is a truth. Anyway, Christianity is not a religion, it's a personal relationship with Jesus. True. But I think what people do with that, whether they say it or not, is they equate personal with individual. We have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is not an individual relationship with Jesus. We are saved into a community. We are a body. We're not just a bunch of parts. We are a temple made of stones, not just a bunch scattered around. It's a personal relationship, but it's not individual. So how can these who deconstruct their faith read this prayer? Hearing the heart of Jesus and conclude that their faith is individual with all this talk of oneness and unity. How could they conclude that the church is corrupt or unnecessary? Honestly, I don't know how anyone can view themselves as being in the Christian faith and not be in a church community. I know there are exceptions and seasons of life, and I want to be sensitive to that, but biblically speaking, it's a contradiction to say you're a Christian and you're not a part of the church. And to be clear, I'm mostly speaking of a mindset here. I'm not at all thinking of of shut-ins or those who want to be physically present and connected but are unable. A Christian who isolates by choice is either not a Christian or is greatly deceived or in a really bad season of life. And when I think of, gosh, think of things like this virus that we've been dealing with. The government control that we're dealing with and how that affects the church. The creation of fear in our society. More and more, don't you just see it as an attack of the enemy? Isn't that what he wants? For us not to be together, for us not to be one? We need to resist that. Trying to isolate us and deceive us concerning the importance of the unity within the church. That doesn't mean we're all going to like each other. We're called to love each other and forgive each other and bear with one another and do life together. And that's what makes us grow, right? It's that conflict and tension and the fruit of the Spirit coming out in us and and us giving that to one another. We don't just look for a place where we get along with everyone and think the same way as everyone. We think the same way we're united on the big thing, the gospel, the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, live stream is great. We resisted it for many years, but I'm happy that we have it for those who are sick or physically unable to come and worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're staying home because you don't want to be with people or because you prefer the comfort of your own home or because you think the church is only hearing some music and a teaching and not a participation with real people, who are supposed to be one with you. you need to adjust your thinking. It doesn't fit with this. That is not the church. That is not what Jesus prayed. But if you really want to be here, and you can't, please, I'm not saying any of this to make those people feel guilty. We're glad we can provide this and you can feel some connection that you're unable to have. It's important. But if you're preferring it and you think you can be a Christian by yourself, then you might want to read this prayer again. I would suggest reading this prayer. I would suggest reading the book of Acts and see how the church cared for one another. The church... Like I said, one of our biggest problems, I think one of the biggest problems within Christianity is a low view of the church, is a terrible ecclesiology. And people think wrongly that the church is some man-made structure. No, the church is God's idea. And we're united to the apostles who are united to Jesus, who is one with the Father. The church is not... I also hear people say, well, I have a Bible study with a bunch of Christian friends, we call that church. No, it's not. A community that God describes, is, it's put together, it's described in the pastoral epistles. It's described in our New Testaments. God puts together a church, and in doing so, he, he provides, He gifts people. He gives deacons, He gives elders, teachers. There's a structure of accountability and authority. And that's safe and that's good because we're sinners and we need it. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to challenge people who are straying. And that requires a structure, a role of responsibility to go after, to discipline if necessary. And that's not going to happen in a Bible study of peers. That's a man-made structure. It's good, but it's not the church. We need the church. We need to be united in God's Word. And God's Word describes the church as His idea, His design, His wisdom, and His love, and His authority. So read over this prayer, I would recommend. Meditate on it. Pray through it. And let's grow. Let's grow in our appreciation for what God has put together. Let's commit all the more to coming and worshiping and seeking discipleship. And that can appear in a variety of ways. We have all these small groups. We have men's groups. We have women's groups and young girls' groups and guys' group, boys' group, home groups. And a lot of discipleship. It happens within groups. You know, Jesus discipled a group, not one-on-one. We have One-on-one is great, though. And if you're really craving that, write me. If you don't know where to start, I'll try to connect you with someone. Or come to a men's group or go to a women's group and seek it out there. But we need to be, and you might be thinking, well, who am I to disciple? No, if you've been in the faith, you know something. There's something to share to someone. Be discipled and disciple. And that's how we do community. That's how we do church together. That's an important part of what we do. So let's commit ourselves to that. We can trust the Lord. We can trust that this is right and true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for answering Jesus' prayer that you glorified him so that he might glorify you, that you, you kept those first disciples in the truth of your character, united in Jesus, who is one with you. And we thank you for making us one, not only one with each other, but with the apostolic church, united in the truth of your word. Father, protect us keep us united. Help us to love and forgive and be united about the main thing, the ultimate truth that transcends all other disagreements. Help us to love your church because we love Jesus. So we pray in his name. Amen.